I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we mark the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark ruling in Loving versus Virginia, which was issued on June 12, 1967. In that case, the court struck down bans on interracial marriage as violations of both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Joining me to discuss Loving and its constitutional legacy are two of America's leading constitutional scholars. Stephen Calabresi is the Clayton J. and Henry R. Barber Professor of Law at the Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law and a visiting scholar at Brown University. He's a member of the Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board and is co-author of Originalism and Loving versus Virginia in the 2012 Brigham Young University Law Review, which I want listeners to check out. And Cheryl Cashin is professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center. She is the author of the superb new book, Loving, Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy, which listeners should also get as well. Steve, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having us. Let us begin with the history of anti-miscegenation laws. That's bans on interracial marriage in the United States. They have an ignoble history dating back to the 1600s, uh, and the Virginia law at issue in the Loving case had uh, 17th century roots, but also had been revived in the 1920s when states passed a whole bunch of racial integrity laws uh, prohibiting interracial marriage. Uh, Cheryl, tell us about the history of the Virginia law at issue in Loving and the history of anti-miscegenation laws in America. Well, anti-miscegenation laws are part of the law of slavery. Um, if you look at what colonial Virginia and, and the, all of the colonies were like in the 1600s, from 1607 to about the 1660s, indentured white servants, uh, black servants and slaves, and indigenous slaves labored alongside each other, you know, in the tobacco fields and cotton fields. And when uh, white slave owners or planters um, decided to transition from indentured servitude to black chattel slavery, one of the problems was there had been decades of fraternization, alliance, even rebelling together among bonded people of all colors. So in order to make slavery as an institution effective, um, in the first comprehensive slave code adopted by Virginia, they included penalties for interracial sex, interracial marriage, interracial cooperation. And, you know, that is the beginning of the creation of whiteness as a concept. And there was an ideology associated with it, you know, white supremacy supremacy and black inferiority, which the masses actually didn't didn't have in their heads. Um, but anti-miscegenation laws was one of the main ways for teaching that idea that it's not appropriate to marry, play checkers with, uh, live near um, a person of color. And um, so uh, Virginia from the 1660s forward relentlessly policed interracial sex, 
Um, and uh, Virginia had the largest population in the colonies and the largest population of slaves, and their legal code was the model for other colonies. And they relentlessly, um, for the next 300 years, policed this line um, right down to the um, uh, Racial Integrity Act of 1924. And in that act, which was passed at a time when um, ideas about eugenics uh, and, and white supremacy um, were, were uh, you know, really, it was a nasty time in American race relations, um, they narrowed the class, uh, the definition of whiteness down to um, what's often referred to as a one-drop rule. Um, it's an utter fiction, but they demanded, if you wanted to qualify as white, uh, in theory, you were supposed to be 100% white, and the only exception was a, a white person could have up to 1 16th um, Indian heritage, and that was um, the so-called Pocahontas exception. Um, it, you know, there was a class of whites who um, were aristocrats, aristocrats in Virginia that descended from Pocahontas her, herself, and so they had an exception for that. But Otherwise, a white person under the Integrity Act could only marry someone who was uh, all white. And they had a, a guy named Walter Plecker who was um, obsessed with this idea of racial purity, who was head of the, um, the, the bureau that kept statistics for birth, birth certificates and marriages. And he had minions and he would um, relentlessly police this law. Thank you so much for that really helpful and fascinating and troubling history. Uh, Steve, uh, what, uh, I'd like you to add uh, uh, some details. During the oral argument at Loving, the Loving's lawyer, Philip Hirschkoff, talked about that 1924 period. He said it was a historical period when there was concern about the yellow peril. Western states were thinking about these laws, and basically because of a concern about eugenics and race, suicide, a bunch of states began to pump up their anti-miscegenation laws. And I'll also add, Steve, this really fascinating new book by James Whitman called Hitler's American Model, the United States and the Makings of Nazi Race Law. Whitman says that uh, there was a meeting uh, in the Third Reich where participants debated whether they should bring uh, Jim, so show, Jim Crow segregation to the Third Reich and discuss the anti-miscegenation statute from 30 states that criminalized racially mixed marriages and used them as a model for the Nazi laws. So what can you fill in yes, about Jeff, that period? Yes, thank you very much for that question. Um, uh, I agree with Cheryl completely on the background to anti-miscegenation laws leading up to the Civil War and during the period of slavery and certainly such laws continued after the Civil War and were a badge of slavery and were unconstitutional. Um, but I think it's important to note that there was a major change in intellectual opinion from the time of the founding to the 1920s to the present day. And at the time of the founding, um, all educated Americans believed in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And actually, in my research, I've discovered that six out of 11 states at the founding and 24 out of 13 states in 1867 
had clauses in their state constitutions that began with the words, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural and inalienable rights, among which are the right to enjoy life and uh, liberty and to defend and acquire property and to seek and pursue happiness and safety. So at least in formal law uh, and among intellectual opinion, from the founding uh, up through 1868, there was a commitment to equality. Obviously, that didn't. The framers of the Reconstruction Amendments didn't follow through on that with respect to the freed African Americans, but the intellectual climate was one of belief in egalitarianism and freedom. Unfortunately. Darwin's publication of The Ascent of Man in 1871 gave rise to the eugenics movement, which was led by his uh, cousin, Francis Galton, in England. And the eugenics movement from the 1870s up until 1945 uh, gradually gained ascendancy among intellectuals, so that Whereas, by, whereas at the founding, people generally exceeded that all men were created equal, by about 1900 or so, most intellectuals and educated Americans believed in some form of social Darwinism, not that men were created equal, but that there was a race for survival of the fittest, and only the fittest human beings would survive. Um, the American eugenics movement was a major movement rooted in racism directed at African Americans, and uh, it had tremendous support. It was supported by the president of Harvard and by the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, and it made an effort to export its ideas to Europe by holding conferences in Europe. Um, the eugenics movement received a major boost when Woodrow Wilson became president. Wilson, for whatever his other virtues were, uh, was an inveterate racist. He, for the first time ever, segregated cabinet departments. Prior to 1913, African Americans and white Americans had worked side by side in the federal government. Wilson imposed segregation and even ordered that screens be erected so that white Americans and African Americans couldn't see each other when working for the federal government. Wilson hosted the first ever filming of a movie in the White House, Birth of a Nation, which was uh, a racist call that led the Ku Klux Klan to uh, a spike in lynchings in the 1920s. And ultimately, in the 1920s, the eugenicists uh, realized that although they had euthanized about 10,000 Americans, they really needed the blessing of a Supreme Court case to accomplish their mission. They staged the bringing of the case Buck v. Bell, and in Buck v. Bell, the Supreme Court, 8 to 1, in an opinion by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, sanctioned eugenics. And Holmes has, of course, in Buck v. Bell, a famous passage in which he says, the same principle that justifies compulsory sterilization laws 
also justifies the compulsory cutting of the of the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. So Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a paragon of the establishment in the 1920s, fully embraced the eugenics laws. And after Buck v. Bell, it's estimated that up to 50 or 60,000 Americans, many, many of them African Americans, were compulsorily sterilized. It wasn't until Skinner against Oklahoma in the early 1940s and the discovery of the horrors of the Holocaust that people rejected social Darwinism. And in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, written in part by Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, the Universal Declaration returns to colonial American practice, and it begins with an article that says, all men are born free and equal. So there's a very interesting history with respect to this. African Americans were treated ba badly throughout, but the rise of the eugenics laws, which led to Jim Crow and European imperialism in Africa and Asia in the last half of the 19th century, is an important part of the story of the deprivation of rights of African Americans and other people to procreate. Thank you very much for filling in uh, yet more details of this dark and important uh, story. Cheryl, after the Supreme Court struck down school segregation in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, many argued that the same principle that the court recognized in Brown, namely that the 14th Amendment prohibits laws designed to enforce notions of African-American inferiority also applied to anti-miscegenation laws. And yet the court waited until 1967 to hear the Loving case, and Justice Felix Frankfurter argued that the court wasn't ready and that striking down anti-miscegenation laws would inflame uh, white opinion in the South. Tell us more about the court's decision to avoid hearing anti-miscegenation cases for more than a decade after Brown. Yes. Um, can I respond to one thing uh, Steve said before I do that? Of course. Okay, so um, my one quibble with, with his um, statement uh, about the, the original, he suggested that there was sort of a, a universal feeling about um, equality um, in, among the founders of the country. And at least if, as it pertains to black people, um, I don't think that it was universal. Um, certainly there are examples of proud uh, patriots at the founding of the country uh, freeing their slaves. But there was, uh, by the time of the founding of the country, a, a conception of white supremacy that a lot of people held, uh, including Thomas Jefferson, who never free freed his slaves. Um, and from the founding forward, you know, the only persons who could uh, become naturalized citizens were free white people. Um, so there was this concept of white supremacy, that and that was part of the dogma that supported anti-miscegenation laws. Um, and, and I just wanted to, I, I, I think it's more complicated than, than, than Steve presents. After Brown v. Board was decided in a case called Name v. Name that the Virginia Supreme Court has decided. Um, in in the, that case, the Virginia Supreme Court and it was it was an it was a um, an anti-miscegenation case in which a couple, um, a Chinese, a, an Asian man, and a, a white woman were married and convicted under the Racial Integrity Act. Um, 
the Virginia Supreme Court defended the right of the state to prevent, quote, the corruption of the blood, quote, a mongrel breed of citizens, quote, or, quote, the obliteration of race pride. Um, and despite such overt racism in the face of the Virginia Supreme Court's opinion, post-Brown, the Supreme Court passed on taking a cert on that case. And I believe, you know, they felt at that time they had put their prestige behind Brown and school desegregation, and there was so much massive resistance to that, um, they, they weren't ready to take on the more controversial form of race mixing, which was interracial uh, sex and marriage. But by the time the Lovings case comes to the Supreme Court in 1967, you'd had a civil rights revolution. Um, there were racial uh, riots, race riots from Watts to Boston um, in the summers of 65, 66, 67. And I believe um, Chief Justice Warren in the court felt it was time um, to confront um, uh, not just any miscegenation law, but the ideology animating the law. And his, in some of his um, language and the opinion suggests that. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Steve, Cheryl talked about a question about how committed to equality the framers were, but you, in your really important article about originalism and the anti-miscegenation laws, argue that the framers of the 14th Amendment in general and the Civil Rights Act of 1866 in particular uh, banned anti-miscegenation laws as a violation of the basic freedom of contract that the Civil Rights Act guaranteed to all citizens, African-American and white alike. Tell us why you believe that the anti-miscegenation laws were inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act. Absolutely. Uh, first, I'll just quickly respond to what Cheryl said about the founding. Um, the Articles of Confederation in Article 4 began with a clause that said the following, the better to secure and perpetuate mutual friendship and intercourse among the people in the, of the different states in this union, comma, the free inhabitants of each of these states paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice accepted shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. So the Articles of Confederation explicitly contemplated that free inhabitants of states, including free African Americans, were citizens of the United States entitled to the privileges and immunities of free citizens when they traveled into slave states. Uh, there are also a couple of, I, I don't disagree with Cheryl that Thomas Jefferson was a racist and that there was a tremendous amount of racism in the South, but there was a very important uh, anti-slavery movement in the North at the time of the founding. Benjamin Franklin founded an anti-slavery society. The Quakers founded numerous anti-slavery societies. All of these groups lobbied Congress, and Congress in 1794 passed a statute that was signed by President Washington forbidding Americans from engaging in the slave trade. Um, Cong the Continental Congress in 1787 passed the Northwest Territories Act, which forbade slavery in the Northwest Territories, which became the free states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, 
Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. So there was strong anti-slavery statement at the founding, as well as defense of slavery by Southern slave owners. Um, that division persisted pretty much till the Civil War. Um, at, after the Civil War, uh, Congress passed the 13th Amendment outlawing slavery, and most Northern Americans assumed that with the outlawing of slavery, race discrimination was over. Uh, they were bitterly disappointed in the summer of 1864 when uh, the state governments, which President Andrew Jackson had reinstated, all began passing statutes called Black Codes that forbade freed Americans, freed African Americans from owning property, from being vagabonds, meaning not having a job, and um, these black codes essentially required freed African-Americans to sign a contract to work on a plant plantation for a year, and they made criminal any breach of that contract so that any African-American who failed to work on a plantation for a year could be imprisoned. In response to that, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which said, among other things, that um, free that uh, citizens of that all persons born in the United States were citizens of the United States, including African Americans, and that citizens of every race and color should enjoy the same right to make and enforce contracts as is enjoyed by white citizens. They also applied that to all other common law rights. Um, some courts in the 1870s, three state courts in particular, concluded that anti-miscegenation laws violated the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was written into the Constitution by the 14th Amendment, because if a free citizen who was white could, marry, could contract to marry another white citizen, then a free citizen who was white could contract to marry citizens of any race or color under the Civil Rights Act. So I think there is an ironclad legal argument that anti-miscegenation laws were unconstitutional under the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the 14th Amendment as it was originally understood. Of course, as Cheryl well knows, uh, the Supreme Court in the 1880s upheld uh, an anti-miscegenation act, in effect, um, uh, to the court's everlasting discredit. And even Justice John Marshall Harlan joined the opinion. It was a unanimous opinion. And so bans on interracial marriage persisted from that opinion up until 1967. Uh, but three state Supreme Courts interpreting the Civil Rights Act of 1866 did actually strike down anti-miscegenation laws in the 1870s before Reconstruction came to a close. Part of the reason Reconstruction came to a close was because social Darwinism was beginning to take hold in the United States. But I believe that loving against Virginia is the justifiable on originalist grounds because I don't think 
uh, I think citizens of every race and color have the same right to enter marriage contracts with white citizens as are enjoyed by white citizens. Fascinating. So listeners, just to uh, clarify the importance of what Steve is saying, there's a dispute about whether the 14th Amendment, as originally understood, uh, was intended to strike down school uh, desegregation. But Steve says it's there's not a dispute and it's less uh, unclear that the 14th Amendment was intended to strike down anti-miscegenation laws. And you can check out his great article and uh, learn more for yourself. Cheryl, so we're now approaching the Loving case in 1967 out of the 30-plus state laws that had been on the books banning interracial marriage in the 20s and 30s. The number had declined to just 16 states by the time of Loving. Um, The court uh, had struck down or, or rather reversed its 1883 precedent where it permitted states to punish interracial adultery and fornication more severely than the same offense when committed by people of the same race in 1964. And social opinion is changing, but nevertheless, there's strong majorities in the country in favor of anti-miscegenation laws. So we're now approaching the Loving case. And tell us about uh, Richard Loving and uh, the woman he wanted to marry and why he told his lawyer, Bernard Cohn, Mr. Cohn, tell the court, I love my wife and it's just unfair that I can't live with her. In Virginia. So Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter lived in a rural hamlet called Central Point, uh, a community, a small community of farmers in, in Virginia, in Caroline County. And this was uh, both a county and a, 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 a hamlet that had a history of race mixing from the colonial period forward. Uh, blacks, uh, whites and indigenous people, mainly the Rappahannock Nation, um, had been dealing with each other um, and defying this line constructed in law, the color line constructed in law. And even in an era of violence back Jim Crow, um, where Mildred and Richard went to separate and very unequal schools, um, people would mix. And Richard... Um, I call him one of one of the most culturally dexterous uh, people in this story. Uh, he was white, but his uh, best friends were mixed race. Um, um, you would call them black probably today. Mixed race, men of color. They drag race cars together. Um, uh, Richard met. Mildred because he would come to her house to hear her brothers play bluegrass music and these people were friends and hung out together and Richard and Mildred fell in love and although uh, there was a lot of what is called nighttime integration (laughs) in in this community um, a lot of people knew about it. Richard was the rare white man who wanted to marry the woman he loved. Uh, Frankly, you know, she got pregnant and and he he wanted to do the honorable thing and marry her. Um, And so they had to go to D.C. to get married, um, but they came back home. And within weeks of of that, um, the sheriff uh, and busted into their house in the middle of the night, um, dragged them. Mildred was six months pregnant. He dragged them off the jail. Um, Mildred spent five days in a rat-infested cell. Um, and uh, that was the beginning of their nine-year nightmare uh, leading up to uh, the Loving case. 
Um, Steve, please add anything you'd like to the facts of the case. Uh, tell us about the Lovings and then uh, introduce the constitutional arguments that the lawyers for the Lovings made on behalf of their clients. Sure. Um, just to add to what Cheryl has said, despite the fact that there were anti-miscegenation laws on the books, in particularly in the southern states, but also in many border states and some northern states uh, from colonial times up until 1967, despite that fact, um, there was a lot of interracial sex going on in the South and in other parts of the country. In fact, many white slave owners raped their black slaves and imprisoned the offspring of those uh, raped unions. Uh, and in fact, uh, it was common in the 19th century for people to distinguish between uh, political rights like the right to vote, civil rights like uh, equal rights under law, and social rights, which were not supposedly protected according to Plessy v. Ferguson under the 14th Amendment. Uh, one northern humorist said of the South, it seems to me that the only equality of rights that the South enjoys is equality of social rights because of all the sexual activity going on among whites and African Americans in the South. In terms of loving itself, um, Brown v. Board in 1954 announced a rule of no race discrimination as to education, and it disapproved statements in Plessy against Ferguson to the contrary, but it didn't actually overrule Plessy against Ferguson outright. And it didn't. It wasn't clear from the opinion in Brown what what else it applied to. Uh, from 1954 to 1967, there was a 13-year period in which the Supreme Court gradually became more aggressive in enforcing the no race discrimination command. And in Loving against Virginia in 1967, the Supreme Court finally did enforce that uh, command vigorously in an opinion. Um, there were two holdings in Loving. One was an equal protection holding that uh, it violated the equal protection clause to not give citizens of every race and color the same right to marry white citizens as white citizens enjoyed. And uh, as I've explained, I think that's clearly correct, even as a matter of the original history of the 14th Amendment. There's also a due process holding um, in which the court says that there is a fundamental right to marriage and one can't discriminate against that fundamental right on the basis of race. So Loving is a tremendously important landmark opinion that bans anti-miscegenation laws on both equal protection and uh, substantive due process grounds. And I see Loving as marking the bookend of the period that began with Brown, uh, where uh, anti-miscegenation laws were, were banned. One question that people wonder about is why didn't the Supreme Court in Brown announce a rule of no race discrimination that would have made Loving unnecessary? And the reason is that the Supreme Court knew that the Brown ruling was going to be wildly controversial 
And so it proceeded in baby steps toward the outcome in loving, and it wasn't until loving that the promise of Brown v. Board was fulfilled. An analogous thing in our modern era is what the Supreme Court did with respect to sexual orientation. First, in Romer v. Evans, the court struck down a Colorado initiative uh, targeted at same-sex And then uh, in Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, the Supreme Court struck down a criminal statute criminalizing. And then finally, in the last, uh, I think, two two years ago, in Obergefell against Hodges, the Supreme Court struck down bans on uh, same-sex marriage. But the court definitely followed the same pattern in same-sex marriage as it did with anti-miscegenation laws of spacing out its rulings over a period of 13 or 14 years. Um, This is consistent with something Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said in her confirmation hearings to the Supreme Court. She said the mistake that Roe v. Wade made was that it tried to do too much in one opinion too fast and that it would better have been stretched out over a period of years. That's what the court did with sexual orientation, and for better or worse, that's what the court did with anti-miscegenation laws. Uh, Politically, it makes the court's opinions more palatable, but legally, it's deeply unsatisfying. Thank you for that. Uh, Cheryl, I want our listeners to understand both the equal protection and the due process holdings in Loving uh, as precisely as possible. On the equal protection front, uh, the lawyers for Virginia said there's no violation of equality because this applies equally. Whites can't marry blacks and blacks can't marry whites. But uh, Chief Justice uh, Warren said that despite this equal application, the law was infected by a purpose, which was to preserve white superiority. Tell us more about that equal protection holding and also the basis for the due process holding that the right to marry was a fundamental right and could not be infected by an illegitimate uh, racial purpose. Well, more pointedly, he said it was an instrument of white supremacy, and he said it with capital letters. And what's most important to me about this case is it's the first time in the history of the Supreme Court where the court names the regime white supremacy that the Civil War and the 14th Amendment were supposed to have put to bed. And there's a gloss here that that Steve has. I I have a very kind of different gloss on the history leading up to um, um, uh, this decision. um, And it's the arc of my book. You know, whiteness and supremacy and anti-miscegenation was created to solve a class conflict between wealthy planners and poor white servants. It had a political function and it worked. Um, And this dog whistling, this ideology of white supremacy uh, um, and, you know, a divide and conquer politics and rhetoric continued from the, you know, the 1700s forward. And throughout the, the lead up to this case, you know, it was part of the political rhetoric in Thomas Jefferson's presidential election, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, in, um, you know, the whole word miscegenation is created out of a political hoax to, in, in um, Lincoln's effort to run for, to get reelected. Um, you know, the whole idea 
that uh, white supremacists were selling to, to, to particularly to poor white people is if you know if you vote for the radical Republicans, your daughter's going to end up having sex with black men. Fear of black men having sex with white women is the central animating um, propaganda around Jim Crow. So here we are, you know, in 1967, in this opinion, those ideas are still out there in the minds of people. And so, you know, what Chief Justice Warren says, and he, he invokes Korematsu, you know, and the irony Korematsu gives birth to so-called strict scrutiny, even though Korematsu didn't get the benefit of it. Um, but he says that uh, we now have this well-established proposition that racial classifications should be subject to the most rigid scrutiny. And for Warren, this scrutiny, whether under the Equal Protection Clause or under the Due Process Clause, required proof of a purpose in, independent of invidious racial discrimination. And, you know, the, the Virginia court had handed, by endorsing the logic of 99, the Virginia Supreme Court had handed um, the, the Supreme Court evidence of truly invidious discrimination. Um, so, you know, for me, that that's what's so important about loving um, is that the, the court is acknowledging this very long history of propagating white supremacy. Um, and in a series of opinions, um, there's a lesser known opinion that was decided two weeks before Brown, Hernandez uh, v. Texas, and then Brown and Loving, all unanimous opinions written by Chief Justice Warden. He's imagining a lot more than colorblindness for the Equality Clause birthed by the Civil War, and he's trying to steer the nation, um, I believe, toward a, 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 you know, a different consciousness and, and basically saying indirectly by, by using these words white supremacy twice, it's time to put this ideology to bed. Fascinating. So, Steve, you can uh, respond, of course, as you as you think best. But Cheryl is saying that Chief Justice Warren was not embracing a general norm of colorblindness, but a prohibition on laws designed to pr promote white supremacy. The language in Loving is the fact that Virginia prohibits only interracial marriages involving white persons demonstrates that the racial classifications must stand on their own justifications as measures designed to maintain white supremacy. And in footnote 11, which uh, Warren cites to, he quotes the language of the act to preserve racial integrity, which extends only to the integrity of the white race. And he says that the appellant says this is unreasonable because only white uh, people's integrity is supposed to be preserved and not those of descendants of Pocahontas, Negroes, Orientals, or any other racial class. He says we don't have to reach this contention because the racial classifications in these statutes are repugnant to the 14th Amendment, even assuming an even-handed state purpose to protect the integrity of all races. So how we're... Yeah, I agree with Cheryl wholeheartedly on that, and I think that the ban on white supremacy and loving against Virginia and in Hernandez's case is monumental, and that is not language that appears in Brown, but it does appear in Loving for the first time, and it should be celebrated for that. And all of what the court wisely saw through in Loving was that these laws were part of a general cultural effort to maintain white supremacy that had to be thrown out. Um, I, I should add that um, the United States during the Cold War period in the 1950s and 1960s was extremely embarrassed by white supremacy because uh, all the nations of Africa and Asia overthrew their colonial masters 
and became independent. And they sent ambassadors and councils to the United States. And those ambassadors and councils were hampered in traveling through a third of the nation because of the regime of white supremacy. Um, interestingly, the United States in 1948, thanks to Eleanor Roosevelt, who was ambassador to the United Nations, signed a document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which for 1948 was a very progressive document. Uh, I'll just read Article 1 and Article 2 of the document. Article 1 says, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Article 2 says, everyone is entitled to all the freedoms, rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. Furthermore, no distinction shall be made on the basis of the political, jurisdictional, or international status of the country or territory to which a person belongs, whether it be independent, trust, non-self-governing, or any other limitation of sovereignty. So, in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written in part by Eleanor Roosevelt, outlawed racism, and the U.S. was grossly behind other countries in the 1950s and 1960s in tolerating racism. And I think the great achievement of loving is that it finally cast that aside by rejecting the doctrine of white supremacy and by endorsing the 1948 declaration that race discrimination is per se unconstitutional. Thanks for that. Uh, Cheryl, I want to explore the constitutional similarities between Loving and the marriage equality cases. Some advocates in the marriage equality cases invoked Loving on behalf of the proposition that marriage banning same laws banning same-sex marriage, although formally equal, prohibiting men from marrying men and women from marrying women, were infected by a purpose of gender-based supremacy because they were trying to enforce sex stereotypes that men should act like men and women like women. Justice Kennedy decided not to embrace that argument and focused more on liberty as a fundamental right that couldn't be restricted without very good reason, although, interestingly, the Seventh Circuit has endorsed the sex stereotyping argument in a Title VII case uh, just uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Cheryl, what, what is, to what degree did the constitutional reasoning and loving influence Justice Kennedy in Obergefell, and what aspects of it did he cite? Well, um, my recollection, <clears throat> it's been, it's, it's been a while, you know, six, eight months since I, I, I read the case, but my, my recollection was loving was one of three important precedents that Justice Kennedy cited, um, Frankly, I think the influence of Loving was more on the legal advocates um, and the organizers of the same-sex movement than on Kennedy himself. I mean, I've heard lectures from 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 one of the architects of the legal strategy, and and one of the things he said was uh, that they were very influenced by that that footnote in Loving where um, Chief Justice. Warren notes that fifth, uh, something like 15 or so states 
had um, repealed their anti-miscegenation laws in the lead up to uh, uh, the, the case. And he said that stimulated their thinking about, well, what we need to do is have a state-by-state -state strategy and get some state victories to get momentum. And we also, as we're getting state victories, we also need some time. This is that incremental idea that Steve talked about. Um, we also need some time to win more in the way of public opinion. And so they wanted, before they got to the Supreme Court, to have a, a number of states that had already uh, established this. And, um, and, and that strategy worked. I think by the time uh, um, the same-sex marriage case uh, came to uh, the court, popular consensus had flipped already. A majority of people um, now supported um, same-sex marriage, and a number of states already had it, so the Supreme Court didn't have to lead that way. But yes, I do think um, the idea of, of um, fundamental freedom, and I'm talking more atmospherically than the actual legal reasoning, the fundamental freedom to love, animated by loving, certainly influenced uh, Kennedy, and he cited loving. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, Steve, uh, you have argued that laws banning same-sex marriage violate the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, much like those violating or, or rather prohibiting interracial marriages. Tell us why and tell us why the constitutional reasoning of loving is relevant to striking down bans on same-sex marriage. Uh, absolutely, because this is something I feel very strongly about. I filed a brief in Obergefell against Hodges urging the Supreme Court to recognize same-sex marriage. Um, the f I understand the ban on discrimination in the 14th Amendment to be a ban on discrimination on all forms of caste. Uh, the 14th Amendment does not have language saying that it bans only race discrimination. It bans discrimination altogether. And the framers of the 14th Amendment thought that that meant it banned the Hindu caste system, European feudalism, the black codes, and any other system of caste which people might come up with. Um, the 14th Amendment gave all citizens, including children, equal civil rights, but it didn't give them equal political rights. Political rights were reserved for the very apex of the pyramid of rights, those people who had the most rights in a polity. And ultimately, the 15th Amendment gave African-American men the political right to vote. Um, I believe that when the 19th Amendment was adopted in 1920, giving women equal political rights with men, that it became necessary to interpret the 14th Amendment's ban on caste as also banning sex discrimination as to civil rights. Otherwise, you would have the absurd situation where a woman could vote for president, governor, or senator, but she couldn't own property in her own name or make a contract without her husband's consent. And so I think reading the 14th Amendment in light of the 19th Amendment leads to the conclusion that after 1920, sex discrimination is recognized as a form of caste that's absolutely barred by the 14th Amendment, and I take it that's the conclusion the U.S. Supreme Court reach, reached in United States against Virginia, the VMI case. 
the relevance of this to Obergefell is twofold. Uh, first of all, I believe that discrimination against uh, gay and lesbian and transgender people is a form of caste discrimination in and of itself um, and is rooted in prejudice and in bias. And so for that reason, I think it's banned by the 14th Amendment. But even if one doesn't accept that argument, if the 14th Amendment after 1920 bans sex discrimination, then it bans a situation where a man can legally marry a woman but can't legally marry a man. That's sex discrimination, basically, in marriage. So um, much as uh, with Loving Against Virginia, a white man had the same right to marry a citizen of every race and color as he did a white citizen in Obergefell against Hodges, a man or a woman had the same right to marry a man or a woman that they had to marry a person of the opposite sex. And so I think Obergefell is a great triumph and is correctly decided, and it directly parallels loving. And what I would conclude in saying is that after Brown v. Board of Education, there was a huge spate of articles defending Brown v. Board on originalist grounds. But virtually no one other than Cheryl and I has written about loving against Virginia. It's uh, just been assumed to be correct, but it's not been justified and talked about. And that's a great shame because it's a huge triumph and deserves to be rec recognized as such. And it did, I think, contribute materially to Justice Kennedy's opinion in Obergefell against Hodges. Wonderful. Well, it is time for closing statements in this really superb and rich discussion. Uh, Cheryl, first to you. Why is Loving versus Virginia important on its 50th anniversary, and why should our listeners care about it? Well, our, our country has been in a dance from the beginning where we had two competing ideas. One was this universal human dignity idea reflected by Thomas Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence, and the other was this unfortunate idea of supremacy that's very much tied to slavery and and both in law and in the culture and politics we have been fighting a battle and loving is the um the the, the end of the legal battle the legal barriers to interracial mixing which have been going on since the time of man come down um and then loving uh helps to uh usher in um, a social revolution where I think the social, it's fair to say in opinion polls, um, the vast majority of people um, either support interracial mixing or say it doesn't matter. Um, and so I think the true import of the case is is being played out as you, you walk in any major metropolitan a area and you'll see not only interracial couples, but you'll see, you know, transracial adoptions and things like this. And I think this has a lot of implications. I talk about this in the last part of my book uh, about where we're headed in the future. I think um, we're going to have what I call a culturally dexterous class of person. There's a lot of social science, which I document, which shows that people who have intimate connections with a, a different person, of a, a different race or ethnicity, um, they tend to have less prejudice 
Um, they tend to be committed to racial equality and their politics tends to reflect this. And I think where California is today um, could be where the country is. Uh, I dare to be optimistic about the possibility of creating a third reconstruction where we finally get our founding ideals right. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Steve, last word to you on its 50th anniversary. Why is Loving versus Virginia important, and why should our listeners care about it? Yeah, I, I agree with what Cheryl said, and um, I would say, and this is in response to some of what we talked about in the last hour, that uh, the uh, guarantee of uh, equality in the Declaration of Independence was given a new life by Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. And he said the founders of this republic promised us equality, but there hasn't been equality for African Americans. And so we've come to the bank to cash our check from the founders, and the check has bounced, and we now demand that the country rise up and recognize our equal rights. And then Martin Luther King says, I say to you my, today, my friends, though even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I think Martin Luther King laid claim to the founding concepts of equality and to all the talk about equality at the Civil War and in the Equal Protection Clause, and he projected it forward to attack the regime of white supremacy. And a mere four years after King gave that speech, the Supreme Court cited, decided loving against Virginia, and I think it is a powerful, powerful repudiation of the idea of white supremacy and an embracing of the idea of interracial diversity, and it is a landmark case in that respect. Uh, it is also a landmark case which has given rise to Obergefell v. Hodges, which is itself a landmark case. So I would say that Martin Luther King in the I Have a Dream speech, Loving against Virginia and Obergefell against Hodges, are testaments to the fact that the Americans today have latched on to the all men are created equal language of the Declaration of Independence and carried it through and applied it to reject white supremacy and to provide equal rights to same-sex couples and transgendered persons. And... Um, that um, you know, individuals like Eleanor Roosevelt writing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and um, Martin Luther King in the I Have a Dream speech helped pave the way for that. Loving is deservedly remembered for nailing the final nail in the coffin of white supremacy. Uh, I also agree with Cheryl, we do need a third reconstruction. There still are many ways in which badges of slavery continue and discrimination continues, but loving is a great triumph along that uh, path, and we should celebrate it and pursue it as best we can. Thank you so much, Steve Calabresi and Cheryl Cashin, for an illuminating, rich, and uh, historically 
uh, educational discussion of this incredibly important uh, case on its 50th anniversary. Listeners, please make sure to read Cheryl's uh, great new book, Loving Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy, and Steve's fascinating article, Originalism and Loving versus Virginia. Cheryl, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today's show was edited by Jason Gregory and produced by the incomparable Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly. I hope you're finding it useful. It's our weekly email roundup of constitutional news and debate. It's got all of our great content, and you can sign up at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Please download the Interactive Constitution at the App Store. If you haven't gotten it yet, do. It's got the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America, including those that you hear on this podcast discussing what they agree and disagree about every clause of the Constitution. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You loyal and lifelong learning We the People listeners are a member of this Constitution Center family. I want you to signify your membership by signing up for the Constitution Center at any level so that you can continue to ensure that this great mission of constitutional education for everyone in America from 8 to 80 continues into the future. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.